Hello, everyone. I want to give you a quick update on where things are with superhero ethics. I'm coming back from my illnesses, and we will be coming back off of hiatus as of the beginning of December. We already have a new episode recorded for you, and I'm in the process of recording some more. We're going to do our best to keep honoring the strike. Um, There's some other content that we were looking at. We also may start going to an every other week format for a little while, superhero ethics, just until the strike ends with um, a lot of other things going on. But we will be bringing you new content soon. In the meantime, for the next couple weeks, we're going to bring out bring back some greatest hits, um, some episodes from the past. A lot of these are from a long time ago. Hopefully, many of you subscribed um, since then, and so haven't heard these before. If you have, maybe you just forgotten and want to hear them again, or if not, scroll right along and uh, just stay subscribed. We'll have new content for you coming up quite soon. Please also remember that the best way to support everything we're doing is to join the membership program. $5 a month, or fi- uh, I think it's $55 a year. You get um, uh, ad-free content. You get bonus content. Not in these older episodes, but in the new episodes that are coming out, as well as a lot of the newer episodes I've recorded. And you just it's a great way to help support what we're trying to do here. There's a lot of work that goes into this. I'm trying to make sure I have enough time to do it. And it you know, it, it, it costs money. It costs effort. And just that 5 bucks a month can do so much to help us know that you care about the podcast, that you support it, and you want to keep seeing more of it. Um, Star Wars Universe podcast will also be coming back. I'll have that announcement on an episode there. But for now, I hope you enjoy this uh, older episode, and please stick around as a member. Please stick around as a subscriber, and we'll talk to you soon. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Do you enjoy anime? Do you enjoy movies that are live action of anime? Do you enjoy discussions of whether eight-foot-tall green ogres who breathe fire should be included in live action of anime? We'll be talking about all of that as we discuss Ruoni Kenshin, uh, the first movie of the series, along with season one of the anime, with myself, Paul Hoppy, and Riki Hayashi. All that and more after commercial break. We have no control over Welcome back. My name is Matthew, your host. You may have heard some new theme music. Uh, we decided to change up our music here on both this and the Star Wars Universe podcast, and that music was given to us by Mr. Paul Hoppy and a band he was a part of, or sort of is still a part of, or Villain's Lament, that he'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but Paul, uh, thank you so much for that music, and how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I, I just woke up. It is early, 7 p.m. in the evening here. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it, my band, it was, it was my band. It's, it's a band that no longer exists. And the title (laughs) of the song is sort of like, and then there were none. So, um, even though the title of the song is actually Villain's Lament, but yeah, it felt appropriate to the podcast. So I hope people enjoy it. And if you don't, whatever, I don't know. (laughs) People like like what they like. It's cool. Paul has been trying to get me into the Kenshin story for quite some time. Mary also is a big lover of it, and especially when we were doing our coverage of Cowboy Bebop and this talking about live-action adaptations of anime, this was one that came up a lot. Uh, I finally decided to watch it over the weekend. As I said, Mary was a huge fan. Thought we'd watch one of the movies. Wound up watching two of the movies and 16 episodes of the anime. Uh, We concluded it was about eight hours total of uh, content. Actually, more like 10 or 12 hours of content. I'm bad with math. Who knows? But it was a lot. It was a lot. We're going to talk about specifically the first movie and season one of the anime. And as part of that, uh, someone else whose opinion I wanted to get on on this because I love having on the podcast, Riki Hayashi. Uh, Riki, uh, I know you had not heard anything about this property until I asked you to watch the movie. And uh, you've done so and are joining us now. Yeah, literally like a week ago, I saw the movie pop up on the Netflix algorithm. 
I said, what the heck is this? And then scrolled mm-hmm. past it. And then you mentioned it. So I have watched the movie, never watched the anime or read any of the manga. So this is all fairly new to me. I mean, it's completely new to me. Um, but I am excited to be here and hopefully add some insights, uh, especially on the historical aspects of this uh, for Japanese history, because Definitely. I did uh, I did study that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really great. Uh, and we'll give kind of a plot summary in a minute. But yeah, this is a... Actually, we'll dive right into that. So I'll give a quick summary of the plot. Um, so the movie starts with uh, events that are from history. And as uh, Riki will hopefully talk to us, as, as I'll, I have some knowledge, but I think Riki has a lot more about how this does connect to the real history or not. Uh, it starts with the Battle of Tobo Fushimi, which was the final battle of what led to the Meiji, Restor- uh, Meiji Restoration, which was the, um, uh, the re- restoration of power of the, Japanese em- uh, the Japanese emperor from the shogun in the 1860s and begun a period of westernization and, and kind of modernization in Japan. And the, the, the movie starts with that final battle, and we're introduced to a character who is called the Potosi, uh, who is a great swordsman uh, of a kind of almost like almost magical, like superhuman abilities uh, shown in, in great sword fighting martial art kind of style, uh, who is just, you know, incredible on the battlefield, fighting for the empire, uh, for the uh, the restoration. Um, and he the end of the battle, and it's clear that he is someone who is just known as this incredible warrior who doesn't want to fight anymore. Uh, we, we then go to a decade later, and we are um, reintroduced to this character who now is trying to do all he can to not be a fighter anymore. He wants to move on. He's haunted by the past. And among other things, he carries a, what is referred to as a sword with a back blade. In other words, the uh, it's a katana-type sword, but the, the back of it is sharpened instead of the front. So it's, in theory, a sword that cannot kill. Uh, he comes to meet a character named K- Kamai Karu, who is the uh, person who runs her late father's kendo school, kendo being the Japanese martial art of sword fighting. Um, and her school is being kind of harassed and attacked, and he winds up uh, protecting them and kind of, you know, becoming part of, of her world. Uh, through the course of the story, they kind of meet others. And uh, one of the other characters that we get introduced to is a woman named Takani Megumi, who's a wo- woman who's making opium for a local crime lord. She goes on the run. She comes to meet our heroes. Our heroes protect them. Uh, there's a number of great kind of adventures that they go on, things like that. A number of other characters who are connected to either his story from the past and who want to keep fighting him or who uh, are, are part of his opium ring. Among other things, we find out that there's someone else who's now claiming this title of Batusi. Um, we refer to him uh, as Fotusi, uh, <laughs> uh, as he is a fake, but he is... Once again, acting as though he is a cold-blooded killer. He's killing people as though he is being ordered to by by the Empire, um, by the Emperor. And uh, our, so our hero is trying desperately to prove that this is not him. Um, adventures happen. Uh, he meets more friends and eventually winds up having to do all he can to rescue the people, to take care of the opium ring, to deal with the um, person who's claiming to be the Batusi, rescue the women, uh, have a great sword fight, and throughout it, try as hard as he can to not have to kill. And at the end of the movie, he's faced with a situation where uh, Kuru... Uh, uh, Kaoru? Yeah. Kaoru. And at the end of the movie, he's faced with a situation where Kaoru uh, will die unless he kills the, the Fotusi. Um, 
kind of convoluted, but it sort of makes sense. Uh, and he is about to, but she stops him saying that, you know, he must not do that. He must not kill because it will forever change him. Um, and that's kind of the movie. Uh, I'm leaving out a lot of details, but kind of hopefully give it a, enough of the plot that people can understand what we're talking about. Um, what did I get? What did I miss? I mean, aside from the names, which I could correct your pronunciation and then Riki could cor- correct my pronunciation, I'm sure. <laughs> so well, um, I'm curious. Yeah. The So the, what did you say, Fotusi? Yeah. Is that, is that something that was in the movie? So yeah, I, it's it, referred to I as Batusai, this. the manslayer, basically. Yeah. Batusi, oh, I think, is you, the bat dance oh, sorry, from Batman A sixty six. Batusai, Batusai. So fo- it, the idea is that this is a person pretending to be the Batusai, so faux Batusai, like faux Tusai, like yeah, fake, is how you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, nobody in the movie says faux Tusai. No, no, no. That was yeah. just my description. Of okay. Him. Yeah. So just just for clarification, I watched this movie in Japanese. <laughs> I don't know, Paul. You did pr- you watch it in German? Perhaps. <laughs> no, um, I, I have only watched Kenshin in Japanese with English subs. Okay. I have yeah. heard the English dubs and it's just I've heard people be like, oh, it's so silly, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, the, the anime anyway. Um, yeah. And it, it just the uh, in the anime, I think the Japanese voice acting is amazing. In English, it's hard to yeah to you know to 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 watch through um yeah so yeah i i've watched it in japanese and i i watch it in japanese with english subtitles as well let's go on a little small tangent about uh translation voice actors pay them Mm. more because i've been reading a lot about some of these anime that are getting translated and it's Mm -hmm. borderline criminal how little they are paying the voice actors for the english dubs my my wife actually worked at a company a long time ago um that basically what they did was they took anime and did the dubs, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So blame them. She doesn't like that company anyway, and they went out of business. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, always, always pay your voice actors more for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Like I, as much as I can, I enjoy getting to hear it in the original language, even if it's one I don't understand, because I think you mm-hmm. get a lot from the acting performances. But yeah, it, it, it is. It seems ridiculous to me that that dubs are seen as so bad, and, and it's in part because it's never going to be quite as good. But just that the acting is generally thought of as universally bad. I'm guessing because they get, you know, people who are going to take just the lowest possible salaries. Um, yeah, and then it's like how much effort is put into directing, you know, the the material and having it actually line up with the original. I, I think. Right. I mean, translation sometimes is very hard, right? Like not everything's going to sure. translate literally, but. Um, or if it translates literally, it might not translate idiomatically, but, but yeah, I, I think really putting the effort into making whatever dub, because some people are going to want to listen to a dub, right? I mean, some people maybe have issues with, with subtitles, like actual, like physical issues or, or cognitive issues or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so having dubs, I think is fantastic, but putting more effort into making the dubs good. And I think if you don't have any issues with subtitles, I think listening in the original language, like at one point we were listening to the second movie, which we found somewhere, which was of, you know, <laughs> questionable quality. But like, I was like turning it up and Lee's like, you're still not going to understand it if you turn it up. And I was like, yeah, but I want to hear like how they're saying it. Um, and like, I've learned words from watching this series because they say it so many times, you know. Yeah. I think wait was one word you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're always like, Mate. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. that, that clearly means wait, you know. 
Um, so, Paul, let's start with you, because obviously this is a story that you really loved and that you thought would be great for this uh, this podcast. What, tell us more about your overall thoughts on this movie. Yeah, I mean, first of all, obviously, it's like totally my niche, you know, like the the highly skilled warrior who hangs up their killing ways and is stoic when things are serious, but silly when things are not and constantly broods over the consequences of their actions, you know, and <laughs> and then inevitably gets drawn into like, oh, do I have to, you know, go back to what I was doing before in order to stop people from causing harm to the people I care about or even people that. Well, people that I care about, yeah, but like whether those are people that I know or just someone I've come upon on the road, you know, right. and um, I mean, Kenshin is is one of my favorite characters of all time. I, in a lot of ways, I feel like Aang is kind of his like spiritual descendant in some ways in terms of like being this character who is central to the plot, is involved in some big struggle, but is like constantly trying not to kill I mean, also like, you know, Batman or <laughs> Daredevil. It's like, it's a, it's a, a niche. Um, you know, but the thing that I, I love about Kenshin so much, which is kind of why the airbender feels like, like they have to have watched this series is how much sort of lighthearted silliness there is amongst the main group of characters with then these like really heavy things going on as well. And, um, yeah, I just really enjoyed a lot of the, the characters, um, from the series and then um i felt like in this movie and the others that i watched of this series they do a really good job of delivering the essence of the characters to the screen which you know doesn't always work out <clears throat> i'm looking at you last airbender um so yeah Yeah, I thought it was a very good movie without really knowing much about the source material. It was just a fun, uh, in Japanese we call it, call it a chambara, which is a sword fighting movie. And it mm. delivered on a lot of those angles. I could see the inspiration from the anime, like the character who has the sword that is like eight feet tall or whatever. Right. Clay, yeah. yeah. Mr. Claymore, man. <laughs> yeah. And it's completely Sorry. ridiculous in live action, but I could see like, aha, like this in an anime, this probably works a lot better. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. And I think, Paul, especially when you talk about the silliness of it, uh, we're going to talk about a lot more, but, uh, you know, the comparison between the anime and the movie is a good thing, is a, is a, is a fine place to start. I kind of had kind of, I think if I had started with the anime, I would have hated this mm. um, because it, to me, it, it gets more into the silly than I like. Yeah. And like, to me, there's a lot of like childlike silliness to the the anime, which is great if people love it. It's just not quite my thing. Yeah. The movie felt more it, it reminded me honestly a lot of the dynamic among the characters in Burn Notice, which is one of our favorite oh, yes. uh, our favorite shows with um, yeah. the uh um Mr. Huge Sword who will never allow his nipples to be covered in any moment <laughs> he is on screen, whether in movie or anime, as far as I can tell. Right, right. Um he's kind of very much the Sam Axe character. Like, like he like there's there's humor and there's lightheartedness, but it doesn't feel kind of child like I don't want to say childish because that's a pejorative, but like childlike. I don't think there's anything wrong with sure. it. Does it feel like it's a more? It, I guess a better way to say it is it's interesting to me that you felt like that was captured, even though it felt like a very different tone to me. Yeah, it, it is a different tone. Um, they literally don't have the children in the movie right. who were in the uh, the series and mm -hmm. aren't like central characters, but I feel like their presence is important you know yeah um th they do have yaiko so i feel like you know he's the the kid at the dojo um 
And, you know, in the series, he's got a whole backstory here. It's like, you know, you, you get the, the sense of what's going on with him, but not a, not a whole lot. Um, I, I really enjoy the moment when Kenshin's like, Oh, I need you to stay here and, you know, watch after the dojo, basically, like, mm-hmm. as opposed to like coming with me and, and getting killed by the 250 former samurai that I'm about to whoop. Like <laughs> it, you know, I think, um, it definitely has a different tone, but it doesn't feel like it has a tone that's, incongruous with the series because the series as you go on has more episodes that are very serious right that are of a of a kind of darker tone heavier um the the fact that they they there's still a lightheartedness in here somewhere i feel it's just not the main focus and the series the first season of the series particularly which is kind of the part of the story that this corresponds to sort of or that they've drawn from various elements um, I feel has a lot more of that than as the show goes on. And so this movie feels like, you know, when you go to live action, you can't do all the same things, but I felt like there was still humor, right? It's oh, yeah, just, definitely. it was, it was a little different. Um, but different in a way that I think is fine. And I think is maybe even appropriate to a live action adaptation. Um, it just, it worked for me, you know, yeah. and I'd also seen the beginning and the final, which are like the prequel that I think was the fourth movie they made and then the, end piece which is a fifth movie they made and those were so good in terms of the way they captured things that they kind of reflected on this to me this wasn't the first um in this series that i've seen so that makes sense but there's a scene in particular that i felt was inspired by an anime aesthetic which is the fight that spills into the kitchen yeah Right where the oh, yeah. the two characters are fighting, and they, they they just start throwing everything in the kitchen at each other, breaking yeah. plates, and then one of them like grabs a chicken, yeah, and he takes a bite out of it, and he throws it to the other guy and says, "Hey, let's stop fighting for a bit. Eat this." And then the guy's like, "No, no, no, I can't eat this. I'm a vegetarian." It's like, "Oh, okay. How about you know, drink some of this sake?" And yeah. they both swig it. And they start eating everything in the kitchen. Like, oh, wait a minute. We were fighting. Let's start fighting again. Right. That felt like an anime. You know, like the yeah. the f- warrior who eats a lot is a trope. Yeah. Dragon Ball, Goku eats a lot. One Piece, Luffy is constantly eating after battles to replenish his strength. So that, to me, like felt super anime, that scene. Yeah, and and that to me also felt super true to the character. Um, like Sonosuke is constantly talking about food, constantly wants to eat. You know, he's like, "Oh, where's the beef? Like, get beef, get more beef." Like, which, which makes him also a so- a Sokka character. Kind of going back to your right, yeah, yeah, Vendra. exactly. Um, and honestly, like you know, after on the Moon Knight coverage, I've been talking about like representation of vegetarians and vegans. And like, to me, this was just perfect in that regard of just like the one character is like, I'm a vegetarian is like, oh, okay, well, how about some wine? And it's like, cool. Like that, just like little bits of things like that sprinkled throughout media to me, like go a long way as just being like, oh, hey, I exist in this story, you know, Um, even though I see myself more as Kenshin. But like... (laughs) Yeah, I, I was struck by so many parts of that. First of all, the, the 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 hero who is fighting in that kitchen scene—it's not Kenshin; it's Mister Huge Sword person. Yeah, yeah, Sanosuke. Um, so, so, Sanosuke. Yeah, you could call him Sano. That's kind of Sa- more the Sano. little easier. Um, to, yeah, and like that scene itself doesn't appear in the anime—at least not in season one that I've seen. But yeah, I think it's very much of the anime. It has that same kind of idea to it. 
And I remember watching that because they're in a fight. They're kind of tr- like tr- you expect like a little bit of like trash talking each other, or disrespecting each other. And what's an easier, more low hanging fruit than like, oh, you're not a real warrior. You're not a real man because you don't eat meat. And so the fact that that wasn't there, was just, oh, you're a vegetarian. OK, cool. Have some sake. Like, I just loved that moment so much. Yeah. And like this is clearly like a, a hardcore warrior. Right. <laughs> like, right. And that there's no nothing said about that sort of being maybe seeming a little unusual. It's just like, yeah, OK, you know. Right. Um, yeah, there was it, also to me, it's like. You can get humor out of aspects of people's identities by kind of showing sometimes some of the situations that come up without having that humor being directed at their expense, yeah. you know? And so this was a case to me of like, yeah, they 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 played it for laughs, but they didn't play it for laughs at him. It was just like the whole scene was just funny um, yeah. and, and felt like it, it sit really well as sort of like a, a little bit of a sorbet in yeah. uh, in the middle of a big battle, there were also definitely some shots that I then that I, I watched and I was like, that has to be a shot from the manga or from the anime, and, and in many cases it was. Like mm-hmm. there's a couple scenes where, you know, uh, Kenshin leaps into the air and he kind of has his like feet drawn up and his arms outstretched, and like the camera kind of does a little bit of slow motion, like almost stopping. And it's like, okay, that's a frame from a manga or an anime that they're recreating there, right? Uh, and I really liked stuff like that. Well, I felt that uh, some of the some of the shots in the fights seemed inspired by the Matrix, right? Mm. Did did you get that at all? Because the way that Sanosuke fights with his sword against like the hundreds, oh yeah, at the end, yeah. yeah. There's a scene in the second Matrix, I believe, where Neo is fighting against all the Smiths, and he takes like a lamppost and uses it in, mm-hmm. a, in a very similar style, where he spins it around his head. Yeah, in, in like the park or something. Yeah, and then Kenshin also does a move where he runs and then does like a slide, like a spinning slide and just like trips a bunch of people up and that yeah. that's also reminded me of something that uh, Neo did in that in that fight. Mhm. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. The, I definitely got that sense as well as the use of kind of slow-mo in the middle of a fight scene to yeah. show off the move. Like, you know, I, I thought that also felt very evocative of of some of those other mediums. Um Let's talk about the setting of this for a moment. And because it, honestly, it was one of the things that really drew me in. This is a, a period of history that I'm very fascinated by, both the specifics of it, but also because there's a little bit of a kind of, you know, this moment of history is one that we kind of see at other times as well, in terms of sort of the there's been a major political change, there's being a shift away from kind of more traditional ways of doing things, including kind of. But, you know, people like 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 one of the things that happened at this time was that the samurai were basically made illegal. It was no longer legal for them to carry swords in public. They were they were cut off from government payments and like a lot of changes like that. And, and so the kind of idea of like what do you do with this cast of, of warriors and and where do they go from here? But but also that just this idea of this moment in time of kind of like the 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 westernization and the pushback against that. And it's funny because I imagine for many people, especially Americans or other Westerners, if you know about this moment from pop culture, it's probably from the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, which <laughs> is completely historically inaccurate as far as I understand. And it's very much a Dances with Wolves story of we're going to tell the story of – and I'm, I'm, I'm using this term because it's that how the movie portrays it. I think it's very problematic. The kind of like the white man who discovers the noble savagery and wants to sort of – 
eschew his own Western ways and live among them and 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 see the wonder of it. Uh, and in that one, he's he's fighting on behalf of the Shogun against the Imperial Western forces. Um, the Imperial forces with westernized military techniques, I mean. Um, and this, Kenshin is fighting on behalf of the Emperor. Uh, and it, it does seem like it's a much more, at least somewhat more accurate telling of this period in history. Um, Riki, you probably know far more about it than I do. What what did you think of the, the way they said it in this period of time and how that was represented? Well, yes. So the weird thing to me was at the beginning in the summary, and I, and I believe even in the movie, the battle is considered the final battle right at the beginning yeah. of the movie that's the how yeah, battle to not, restore the emperor which is not quite accurate but no it's going. it's actually one of the first battles but oh. it so after that battle basically the the um after that battle the shogunate forces keep getting pushed back and back meaning to the north until they retreat to hokkaido the Northern Island, where they form, you know, kind of their own empire—not empire, but republic. Right. I think they called it, and they are—they are later defeated. But this battle that is depicted at the beginning of this movie is actually one of the very first battles of this basically civil war. So it's—it's it's weird that I probably the source material also references that way, and it's kind of historically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. But the overall. Uh, aesthetic of you know what you talked about the samurai is pretty accurate you know there was a sword ban uh, on carrying swords in the streets the interesting thing to me is that we get the character the the police officer character Saito who is a former who is a former samurai and he carries a sword legally yeah and and so his character represents a lot of the former samurai cast who did move on into the legitimate imperial government and right. took many positions, including law enforcement. So a lot of the tension we think about of, you know, old versus new, that wasn't like it wasn't completely abolished. Right. And a lot of the, the people in the old government did find ways to continue on Hmm. and to this day right like the samurai spirit in japan is something that people hold a lot of pride in the baseball team when they participate in the world baseball classic calls themselves samurai japan so Hmm. even though in this period of time it was like historically kind of gotten rid of and like let's get rid of this cast let's get rid of these swords it still continued on so I really like that depiction of it right. and how there were characters like uh, Sato. Is it Sato? Saito. Saito. Okay. How characters like Saito did represent the continuation of that. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of my favorite characters. And it's funny because um, this is a topic that we've talked about before in, on this on this uh, podcast about, you know, kind of the question of like, you know, when there's a major change like this, you know, do you do you adapt? Do you become part of a new thing or do you kind of stay out and fight against it? And um, that's a theme I think that's that's <clears throat> definitely in the movie. And also a lot – the TV – the anime seems like it's a little less interested in the politics and and, and definitely a lot more sort of anti-imperial. Um, but both of them I think do a really interesting job of yeah, portraying this like you have all these different people who went through this transition and are now trying to figure out where, where do they fit and where do they fall. And for some of them, it's this – <clears throat> you know, 
they still want to have the one last fight. You know, they want to be the one who can defeat uh, the Betosai, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, you know, and so how, how that plays out, I think it's really interestingly done. Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I have to reference, now that you reference baseball, did you see that there was a pitcher who threw a 19 strikeout complete uh, perfect game in uh, like a 20-year-old through like a 19 strikeout perfect game in the mm-hmm. NPB? In what league? Sasaki. Um, in the... NPB, the Japanese. Oh my goodness! Leaders. I yeah, saw a headline yeah. about this, and I wanted to read yeah. more, but I haven't seen more about it. Which is anyway, that's just like wow. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's, yeah, in terms of the timeline, so I think the timeline might make more sense than, um, than than it feels like it does because they were saying like we won, we won. That battle, if that battle was the first battle, does that mean that was kind of when the um, Imperial forces kind of established themselves as like an actual out in the open faction that were controlling, that were like seeking to control the government? Because... Yes. Okay, so the war only lasted about a year, right? Like the outright like fighting of battles. Is that correct? Uh, Probably like one one to two years. Right. So... Yeah, my understanding is that it's that sort of like the, the, the emperor was established and then there was this like uprising and the battle and then there was this kind of like series of further uprisings. Right. And, and then part leading to the, the, the establishment on the Northern Island. That okay, yeah. Talking about. So I, I don't know that much about the history. Most of what I know about the history is like looking up Okubo or like Saito and the like Shinsengumi like in, in Wikipedia after watching Kenshin episodes. But like – um, Kenshin was supposed to have been from like age, like 14 to 18 was supposed to have been, um, an assassin. So in general, he wasn't like out on a battlefield fighting battles with a bunch of soldiers. He was going around assassinating people and he was part of more of kind of like a shadowy group that was like, there was in theory, like people trying to move towards doing maybe what that first battle established. So I definitely got the impression from the movie that that was like the end of it. But at the same time, I was like, well, if that was the end of it and then someone took up his sword, like, well, the character who shows up in the second movie, it sort of the timeline didn't totally make sense. But I think the implication, I think is supposed to be maybe that they got to the point where they were then fighting these battles. And that's when Kenshin retired. Although I'm, I'm not sure it's probably just wrong, but yeah. he definitely no. was doing what he was doing for longer than the, the outright war was going on. I think that yeah. makes, I think that makes a lot of sense because what was happening was there were basically two breakaway prefectures, I guess mm-hmm. in the, the South of Japan that were probably conspiring in this way, assassinating people and and setting up for this revolution. Right. And then we get to this first battle, which then starts to establish that the Imperial forces have power and that continues and, and they, they take control. So I think you're probably right that the character was <clears throat> contributing to that pre-war period of, of shadowy dealings. Right. Right. And my other understanding is that, like, it is ta- it is the restoration of the emperor's power, the and it's Emperor Meiji, hence the Meiji Restoration. But that, to some extent, what's established here is it's not as much that they're putting this one person in power; they're establishing kind of 
a constitutional monarchy because this is also when the 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 representative assembly begins the diet and things like that so it, it i'm not again not to get too much into the politics of it but just talking about this as I, I think when we talk about it as this is the emperor's return to power that could be somewhat misleading in terms of what what was actually going on right people are picturing like palpatine or something and like the stormtroopers and right yeah because the emperor the 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 office, I guess, of the emperor has existed throughout Japanese history and has been more or less the figurehead, right, throughout. And it's just a matter of how much deference the, the government in control pays to the office of the emperor. And so during the shogunate, the Tokugawa shogunate, you know, from 1600s to when this movie starts, basically, the, the emperor was very much pushed further back from the seat right. of power and the the tokugawa family uh in the in the body of the shogun and then the samurai class and the daimyo were the political powers so what what is happening here in japan at this time is that those old powers of the shogunate and the daimyo are being pushed out and basically like this class of oligarchs you know mostly businessmen are trying to take over um right. Because the so the I don't think we've talked about this yet, but in 1853, probably about 10 years before the events of this movie, the Matthew was Perry when expedition. the yeah Commodore Perry landed in Japan and forced the country to reopen. Because during the shogunate, uh, foreigners were not allowed in Japan, mm-hmm. and Japanese people were not allowed to leave. So the country was completely closed to the to the outside world. And so what's happening in the 1800s is these oligarchs, these business people are seeing the opportunities, right, to not only take political power, but to take economic power by establishing these trade ties with the outside world, with these markets right. and new products and everything. So it's, it's very much a political revolution, but also a, a cultural one where a completely different cast of people are coming to right. power. And it kind of makes sense. Like, if you're basically going to be throwing, not th- if you're basically going to be trying to get the people to move away from all these traditions, doing it under the guise of we're bringing the emperor back, this most traditional thing, kind of, and giving that blessing. Like, one thing I thought was very interesting, because I was looking more at the history of this, is that it's it's ten years after uh, the, that American naval force. Uh, it's also only like five, I think, five or six years after um, the Opium Wars, or at least one round of the Opium Wars in China where the English had basically forced colonization. So there was this attitude of we need to be stronger to be able to resist colonization and then all the questions of like westernizing to fight colonization and et cetera. We're not a, a history or a politics podcast, but I think it all is really helpful to kind of set the set the tone for what we're talking about here. Yeah, and the main villain in this movie is basically a businessman. Yeah. Right. Whose An business is – yeah. But also someone who does, you know, more legitimate businesses as well. Like, I think he has a lot of money from, you know, doing what oligarchs do is like, you know, profiting from trade. And um, yeah, I I think it's very telling that that is like who they chose as the principal villain of of this movie, but is also one of the main villains of the, um, you know, the first season. Right. There's a whole arc. And that's a question I had for you, Paul, because so in the anime, you have a couple of different big villains who who are who each have their own agendas and are there at very different times, including one of which is the one who sort of wants to be the the replacement to Kenjin. Yeah. Okay. Um, Kenshin. 
Um, and in the movie, they're combined. Like he's the main henchman for this right. businessman. Did that bother you? Did you kind of like I, that? That to me, it felt like okay, yeah, a way to get both these characters into the same movie without really cheapening either of them too much. Yeah, it it, it wasn't perfect. I felt, but at the same time, it felt to me like a fine. You know, it's there's yeah. definitely stuff in the way that um, the Conryu story plays out that now going to movie two, I'm like, like, cause the, the two, the guy in the kitchen and then the guy with the mask, um, one of them's named Gain. The other one has a name that feels like it's very much like Conryu, but it's not Conryu. And I don't see his credit in the, um, IMDB. So I'd have to look it up a little bit more, but the two of them, um, they both are part of this group. I believe, I believe they're two characters from the Oniwaban group, which, and then stuff that happens with them is like very pivotal to stuff that happens down the road. So I'm kind of like, oh, that never happened. Um, that felt weird. And like having Jin be this kind of who you call the Fotusai, um, having him be this like, um, henchman, but he was like only sort of a henchman. Like he was clearly right. there, like, oh, I'll work for you. And then he just goes off and just totally does his own thing. And we never see him with Kanryu again, right? So yeah, he gets to be the final boss battle, not the right. Final he, he gets to be the Harvey Dent while the other guy's the Joker, even though he's more like the Joker and the other guy's more like Harvey Dent. But I mean, he also is dressed mostly in black and reaches out his hand to basically force choke someone. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a yeah. very strong Darth Vader vibe I was getting from him at various points. Um, all right, well, so let's, let's talk about some of the, the main kind of ethical questions that come up. Um, and I think maybe the best place is to start with the character of Kenshin, because he's, in many ways, he, this is very much a trope, but it's a great trope and one that I think is done very well in this of, as we said, the, the warrior who's seen the worst parts of war and now doesn't want to fight. Um, Mary, Mary kept referring to him as, uh, really in sort of embracing house husband life. And we see a little bit mm -hmm. of that in the movie, even more in the anime. Every time he's in the background, he's cooking, he's cleaning, he's taking care of the kids. Like he's just loving that side of things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's a really beautiful scene where you kind of understand part of why he walks away is one of the last assassinations he goes on. He basically is killing a bachelor party. It's, it's a, a man who's about to get married and his friends, and they're all kind of celebrating with him the night before his wedding. And he's just begging Kenshin to let him live because he wants to get married. And Kenshin kills and, and the guy leaves a scar on him before the um, before the uh, things are done. Uh, which is a very prominent scar for him for the rest of the movie. And then later we see this guy's fiance just utterly devastated that he's dead. Um, so what did you think of that, the way that was kind of portrayed in terms of his his journey of being this assassin as a kid and like seeing the horrors of war and wanting to walk away from it all? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the character is during the war and like we, we get some backstory. There's a prequel movie that deals with a lot of that. Um, also sort of give some context for the kind of house husbandry. Um, uh -huh. And I think he he's always established as a character who's fighting in order to establish a time of peace, right? Yeah. That's like the goal, right? And I don't know whether my impression is that the, you know, the times of the, the shogunate were, were very violent or could be, um, or at least were perceived that way by some people. I don't know how historically accurate that is, but clearly that's the character's motivation in fighting. You know, he was like, basically he learned a sword style, um, and 
the idea was to protect the innocent. And it's like, well, how can I just stand by while all this is going on? I've got to get involved by killing lots and lots and lots of people. And then at the end of that, then I'll stop. Right. And I think the story is sort of telling like, well, is it that easy to just stop? Like when you use violence to establish an era of peace, is it really going to be an era of peace or is it not? You know, you can't just make this clean transition necessarily. Um, but yeah, I, I've just always been partial to the story of like somebody who used violence for whatever means and then was like, OK, I'm done with that. But then it's like then some context comes up and it's like, well, how am I going to not get involved in this one? I, I love how so much of the focus of the consequences of violence is on the people who've lost those they love, you know, and that that comes through the series um, both the anime and the various movies where, you know, the idea of everyone you kill is like somebody's something, right? And that there is all this consequence for all the people who are left. I, I was going to say, I don't think of the Shogunate era as one that was violent, but that may just be like the historical perspective. There certainly wasn't really war, because right. there was no one to war against. The country was unified for the right. most part. Mm -hmm. And there there was no outside force to fight. But what I think the violence that maybe is happening is violence on the streets, right? Okay. Because yeah. of the class stratification, samurai were the only one who were allowed to carry swords. Mm -hmm. um, so your your basic your merchant class and your peasant class did not have weapons to defend themselves. And basically, a samurai walking down the street could probably just kill someone if they wanted to because. Like, right. you offended yeah. me, I'm going to kill you, you can't do anything about it. They actually had the legal right to, exactly what you said, if they, it was one of the things that the, the, the new government changed, is they took away the right the samurai had to kill a peasant who disrespected them. Yeah. So Seems I don't like think a reasonable there was, change to make. Yeah. <laughs> There was not, you know, widespread political or, you know, war type violence. But right. I, I do, I think what's going on is like the the class violence that was happening. Mm -hmm. And that so Kenshin sense. would certainly, the way his character, I perceive it is like he is defending the common person, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And certainly it's, it's, he's very influenced by Karu, who her and her father, the, the, is it proper to call it a dojo? Is that specific to karate or is that? For any Japanese martial art, well, they call it, it a dojo. Okay, um, I, I saw that in translation. I wasn't sure if that, how accurate that was. Um, but yeah, so that that one of the sort of ideas of their school of kendo is, is the um, that the sword can bring life. It's, it's this very much idea of the sword doesn't have to be a weapon for killing. That it, uh, it can be sort of a way of kind of better understanding yourself and things like that. And it's really nice to see how much he is influenced by that. To yeah, the sort of path of. And then having to face this challenge of do I do I fight to reestablish the non-fighting that I want? Right. He at one point he says a line something like, "I'd rather like she may be dreaming that that's a thing, but I'd rather rather live in a world with her dream than with like yeah. our reality." Kind of. Um, and I I only know a little bit of Japanese, but like I know kendo is supposed to be like a martial art, right? Like the do at the end is like the way. Right. Yeah. And right. yeah. And a couple times they use the word Kenjitsu when they're talking about 
sword fighting, which I think is to contrast it with kendo. Because, like, kenjutsu, while that can be a martial art, the jitsu, I think, means more like skill, right? Like, it's more like technique of, sort of? Yes. Yeah. Right. I would say that's accurate. So it's like the difference between, like, the technique of the sword and using it maybe to kill people and sort of the art of or the way of. Um, and so, you know, it's like the there's, um, I mean, there's other martial arts that use the same, like, judo versus jujitsu is probably the most familiar to people, I think. Oh, okay. You know, um, but like that is a big sort of dichotomy in martial arts between like the idea of learning something just for the practical use of it versus learning something as sort of kind of like a higher pursuit, like to better oneself and only to use that those skills like in a situation of like necessity. Right. And I, I do like it's such a small little detail, but when sort of like some ruffians who are first one of the first big fights we see. Some ruffians come into the dojo and Karu is like very upset that they're doing this in part because she keeps saying, take off your shoes, take off your shoes. And then he starts fighting them outside. And then when he follows them inside, he takes the moment to take off his shoes in the middle of the fight, which I just thought was a great little moment of like showing his respect for that. Mm -hmm. Well, and so so we do then get the story of the person who is so dedicated to nonviolence that he will beat up everybody who he has to to get to the time of nonviolence. Right. Uh, Ricky, I know the, the use of violence is a topic that you're very invested in, very, have a lot of thoughts on. And when I remember I, I suggested the movie to you, one of the first things you said was, isn't that the movie where the, the blurb is about how he, you know, puts down the sword and the image of him holding a sword? Um, <laughs> what, what did you kind of think about the way this movie approached that question of like him wanting to be nonviolent, but then deciding to be violent again in order to, you know, do the things he thinks he has to do? Well, my impression of the character is not, based on this movie, is not that he is non-violent, that he has put aside violence, but that he has put aside killing. Yeah. Because they constantly refer to his character as hitokiri batosai, right? And I think a lot of, in a lot of the times they take out the hitokiri part, Mm -hmm. but that part means literally like cutting people. Hmm. So he has put down the part of his life where he's cutting people, and that's represented in this unusual sword that he carries. They call it the sakabato. I think um, the English they refer to it as like the reverse. Yeah, sword reverse blade. Reverse sword, blade. They call it in English. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, Matthew, the sword, the the so Japanese swords are kind of curved. And the outside part of the curve is the the blade, right? That you would cut mm-hmm. with. And this sword, the outside part of the sword, is is not uh, sharpened, but the inside part is, which I kind of didn't understand. If he's completely putting down cutting people, why does he still have a sharpened part of the sword on the inside? Because as we see at the end, he actually flips the sword around, where he is thinking about killing the the right. villain. Yeah, so I think the idea of having the the back blade be sharp is kind of I've seen various takes on it and I forget the exact way that I saw it expressed that I liked the both best, but I think the idea is sort of like in deference like the idea that like a sword must have a blade, but he has it pointing mm-hmm. at himself as opposed yeah. to um and at one point when he's fi- I think when he's fighting Saito, um Saito like has it cutting into his shoulder or something. Right. He's like pushing the blade back. He's pushing it into it. Yeah, exactly. And 
to be like, this is, you know, this is what sword fighting is. Like someone gets cut, right? And I mean, you know, we can, maybe we want to gloss over the physics of like, if you hit someone really hard with a blunt object and you used to slice through people, like, you know, the idea of non-lethal violence is is suspect, right? Um, I think you can hit someone with a metal pipe and they die, and yeah. right, or on the side of both necks with like two bamboo poles, and like <laughs> they'll they'll just kind of pass out, I guess. But like, you know, it that I feel like is just a conceit that it's like okay, you can choose to not hit people with with lethal right. force as sort of a, a metaphor, kind of right. But but yeah, I think the idea is that like. He's this, he's kind of between, like, he's not going around carrying a wooden sword or anything, right? Um, but, you know, which is what Kaoru is doing all the time. She's like attacking people with like regular swords with like, like she attacks Kenshin, she attacks Jin, like, you know, um, and she doesn't even have a, a metal sword. But I think the idea with him is this sort of like two sides of like, you know, first he was a killer, then he was a wanderer. And yeah. he he still has a blade, but he has it pointing at him whenever he's fighting. I think sort of to remind him that, like, violence can be lethal. Um, right. Yeah. And also I, so he can cut things in half when it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I had a little bit different take. And first of all, yeah, I mean, you've all heard me and Paul talk enough about Daredevil and, and Batman and all the folks who don't use lethal violence as though that's an easy switch to flip. We've, we've had that conversation this movie, again, yeah. is ridiculous about it. We can move on. But it, it did feel to me like there were two kind of issues that were a little bit both established but then kind of linked uh, in a way that frustrated me just a little bit because I think you're right, especially by the end of the movie, it's very much about will he kill or not. And she especially is very convinced that like it's almost this kind of like back I, – I kept getting like Jedi kind mm. of ideas about this and, and yeah. especially because there's a lot of idea of that like if you hate – if you fight out of hatred, you become hatred of it's very – like – not that I think this was based on Jedi stuff. I think George Lucas took a lot of his inspiration for the Jedi from, you know, Kurosawa and, and other kind of um, the stories of this time and things like that. But um, but it seems like because at first he is very not even to to kill, but he's very unwilling to fight. He doesn't want to fight the people attacking the dojo. He doesn't want to fight the opium guy, even though until he like actually poisons half the village. Right. Like there's all these ways he doesn't want to fight. And then it becomes he doesn't want to kill. And we've talked about this before, but I, I just feel like to me those are two fairly different questions. And I, I did wish that they'd been a little bit more separated out. Mm. I think he definitely explicitly took a I will not kill anyone again oath. He clearly uh-huh. didn't take I will never engage in violence again oath because he still has fair. a sword. Right. I mean, right. you don't carry a sword if you say you're never going to engage in violence again. You just like, why would you have a sword? But... I do think he doesn't want to engage in violence lightly because, you know, the idea that it, it can become lethal. Um, right. and, and yeah, I agree that there, he's got this hesitance through the movie early, you know, to avoid, to engage in violence. Um, you know, to the point when, when he's fighting all those people at the dojo, he's not even using his sword to begin with. Right? right. And like, there's a lot of spots where he just won't even draw his sword. He'll like hit someone with the hilt or he'll dodge or whatever. Um, and then eventually, like, once he draws his sword, you're like, Oh, this is, this is serious now, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I can see how this didn't as firmly establish that as like, um, that he's not, he's not a pacifist, 
right? Right. But he he doesn't want to see the consequences anymore of of lethal violence anyway. And so mm. in order to avoid that, he tries to avoid violence in general. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I think certainly the anime, I think, does a better job of establishing that. So that yeah, and it has a lot more time, right? I mean, yeah. I think that's always whenever you're going to make a movie based on a series, it's always like, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of leeway for not delving into, like, Yaiko's backstory, right? Like, we're not going to learn everything about all these characters the way that we we do in the, uh, you know, the, the animated series. Right. Well, but so, but I guess that's kind of the, so. Even if you establish that, that's kind of an interesting question of if you have been a person of violence, especially where your violence was ordered by others, and you've seen the horrors of that, and you now want not only to not be a part of that, but you don't want your society to be ruled by that. Is the answer to then say I will keep fighting, but I won't kill as part of fighting? Is does that does that make sense? Would it make sense to actually be more of the like I just won't fight anymore? Um, Ricky, especially I'm curious. What, what's your kind of take on that? Having never killed anyone, it's hard for me to say. <laughs> but for the record, I, neither Paul nor I have. That's universal. That you but know. But I'm wondering. Of, that I I'm know wondering of. if part of this, part of this maybe confusion between us about the issue, uh, comes up in the translation, because mm. as I referenced earlier, you know, his name was Hitokiri, you know, like person right. cutter. Yeah. And then they constantly reference that, like he references it. And says that's not me. I'm I'm no longer Hitokiri, right? So I'm I'm wondering what what word or name that they used in its place because to me it was clear that he had put down the act of cutting people, meaning killing. Right. Mm, right. Well, and I'm kind of I was kind of asking the next question, uh, assuming that you you were right and I was wrong in that. But but just to, in terms of the words used, the way I understood it was, um, he is he was Botosai he is now Kenshin. And that that was kind of like he had left that part behind. Yeah, very much a Anakin is dead. I'm Darth right. Vader in reverse. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, first of all, the in terms of the English subs, they're a little different in the movie and the animation. And so hmm. I'm probably taking from the animation and bringing it into the, the movie. So... If there's things they didn't make as clear, like that doesn't, you know, that didn't, right. it felt congruous, even though some of the words were different. Like, I forget how they translated, uh, but like they constantly call a manslayer in, in the anime, right? Mm. Like, yeah. um, and. But that again, that was the name that they used for who he was, that he was right. trying hard. Yeah, to exactly. And, um, and then that, like, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. Right. You know, I'm. Kenshin the Wanderer, basically, right? And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I have toyed with the idea of learning Japanese just to be able to watch the series better. Like, sometimes I put off watching series because I'm like, oh, I'll just learn this language first. It's like, "Mm." (laughs) but, like, um, I do have a friend. We have a friend from high school who, like, basically learned Japanese largely by watching anime and lives in Japan now. And, you know, speaks fluently. And I mean, that's, that's like one of the best ways to learn. Like you're not going to just necessarily absorb it automatically, but if you study some and then you watch a ton of animation, like it, it really helps, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it's does, it seems to me like the 
killing is very explicitly the thing. And in terms of giving up violence, broadly speaking, it's like, well, I think it depends on what kind of world you live on. You know, I mean, on. Yeah, sure. Um, It's a choice, right? It's like every time you see someone be oppressed by somebody who's just using violence as their power. Like if you have the power to stop them from oppressing those people or from inflicting violence on them, is it better to kind of like keep your hands clean or do you get involved? And I don't think that's something that there's necessarily like a clearly a a clear, this is the right answer. And I think it's a choice. And I think Kenshin clearly made the choice to try to avoid getting involved unless it seems like there's no other way. And then he does get involved. And that's kind of, I feel, a theme throughout the series. And we can, you know, there's an 18-year gap between that battle we saw and then when the movie takes place. And it's supposedly like he's been wandering this whole time, I think. And then here, finally, he comes to a place that he kind of settles for a little while. Right. right. And she keeps thinking, oh, is he gone? You know, is he gone? Like, um, maybe that's the next movie. I don't know. But like the idea that like maybe there is somewhere he can stay and be happy, but he feels like he's supposed to be a wanderer, maybe, and kind of just like help people along the way in whatever manner he can and just kind of get by. Right. So in his former life or even in this wandering life. Right, he would he would use violence with right. the sword to right whatever wrong he felt was happening, and then we reach the point in this movie where the wrongs being perpetrated right are rat poison on the the citizens of the town, the opium that is being spread and used to to keep people addicted and downtrodden, and then the the use of guns mm-hmm. right at the end we see one of the characters has two pistols that yeah. seem to have unlimited ammunition <laughs> that like popped out of his sleeves yeah desperado style and then the gatling gun yeah at the end so none of the violence being perpetrated by the villains throughout the, that period is with swords mm. right so now he's being confronted with a, a different kind of enemy yeah and the, and but he has to somehow still use his sword and his own brand of to violence to correct the injustices that he sees happening. Yeah, and so you think he's making the right choice then in doing that? I guess I don't know. <laughs> okay, hey, you, you you often talked about well, like being interested in the, in the ethics of when you choose violence. So I, I I thought you'd have because uh, to me I think that that to me is the heart and soul of the movie, and that's where a lot of the um. <clears throat> I love the movie, but it's it, it it's the same problem I have with Daredevil, it's the same problem I have with Batman, is that I feel like to decide I will do violence and not be lethal to me is a cop out. It it A because I just think physically it's not possible, as we've talked about before. But also it it feels like and I love, don't worry, I'm wrong. Like, the fight scenes are great. I love it. But it just, it's always to me an interesting question of like, can you choose to be somewhat violent, you know, as a way, of, like it, one of the reasons why I love the movie V for Vendetta so much is I feel like it has a very different perspective of, yes, I'm going to use violence to sort of clear out the old, but, but I can't be, violence can't be part of what builds the new. Um, and, and Kenjin's constantly talking about the new age, that the, 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 using the language that kind of the imperial, 
uh, group had been using in terms of, you know, bringing about the new age that, that he thinks is going to be so much better. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't feel like it's a cop-out. I feel like, obviously, the physics of these stories are, you could you could say, sort of a cop-out. Mm-hmm. But, like, less lethal violence is real, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll point out there is the one villain who goes around, you know, cutting people all the time who's using a sword for violence. And most of his victims are cops, you know, right. which is kind of its own thing. But, you know, the, speaking of cops, like... Yeah, if cops are going to engage in violence, like the idea of truly non-lethal violence that doesn't really exist, like any sort of violence can can cause someone a heart attack, even if you're just grappling, right? But like right. certain methods of violence are much less likely to be lethal than others. You can shoot someone and have it not be lethal. That happens all the time. But a lot of times it isn't. A lot less often, right? right? Whereas if you punch someone or throw a net around them or like you know, break their leg with a stick or something, it's it's less lethal. And so I, I think that's, I think in a lot of these stories that's presented as this very bright line distinction between I'm using violence that might end in death or deliberately will, or I'm using violence that can't end in death. And I think that's a little bit of a, you know, a fairy tale, right? But I think it is very real that somebody can say, okay, I'm going to try and stop these people who are doing violence by using violence because truthfully, there's not a lot of other ways to actually stop someone who's actively involved in violence, right? There are a lot of ways to try and prevent someone from getting to the point of of wanting to use violence. There's ways of trying to reduce the prevalence of violence in society. But like when somebody is actually actively engaging, engaging in violence, Often, the only thing that's actually going to stop them is some form of violence. And the idea of using less lethal forms of violence that in these stories are couched as non-lethal, um, I, I think is powerful. I think that's very important. Yeah. And I think if, you know, law enforcement or, or various other entities tried to do that more frequently in our world, you know, they'd kill fewer people. And I think that would be an improvement. I guess I think we're, I think we're actually largely agreeing though, and I, I should maybe could, to me the cop out isn't it, it, the cop out is the idea that that you can guarantee that I can take an oath right, sure. to never kill someone, especially because I mean like so much of the so much of the cop killing that we've so much of the murder of people by police that we've seen recently yeah. has been by police using quote unquote non lethal means. Um, so again, that that was just my point is that to me a character who says I want to never kill again, so I'm going to do everything I can. But in deciding to go back to a life of violence, I accept the possibility that someone might die. To me, that that's that would be a lot more honest than the I can take an oath of never killing and yet be violent. Sure. I, I think, again, like we're we keep coming around to the semantics of this translation. And if you were watched a version where he calls himself a manslayer and mm-hmm. is like, I'm no longer a manslayer. Yeah, I understand where you can where you're coming from. From my perspective, uh, listening to the Japanese version, him saying he's no longer going to cut people yeah. is completely consistent with mm-hmm. how he acted in this movie in terms of his relationship with violence. Like he never broke that oath in all of his fights, right? And and was very tempted to at the end when he flipped his sword around, and, and that was that yeah. was the moment of. Mm his conscience like having to struggle with that right but up till then like i i don't think there was any inconsistency and in terms of whether i think like his application of violence was correct or not 
I'm not going to apply my personal philosophy on a on a fictional world and a fictional character. Like I, right. I think we can have our own personal relationships with violence and what our comfort level is, and be able to hopefully be able to look at it differently when we're watching these things and say, I think that this was consistent with his character and what he with the oath he had taken. Well, let me just ask because again, maybe this is also part of the translation. I think for me, a lot of where my I had this understanding that he wasn't saying I won't cut people. It's that he was saying I will never take a human life. Is that Kaoru keeps saying like you can't don't be a killer. You can't kill again. You can't kill again. Is that also a bad translation? Is she also saying you can't cut a person again instead of kill? Because like if the idea is I will not cut, but if someone dies through like because I hit them in the head, I'm I don't want that, but I'm okay with that. I I can understand that. But I get that, that what I was getting lost is because of what she's saying. Is that also kind of lost in translation? I don't remember what she said mm-hmm. uh, specifically in regards to that. But I, my personal feeling on this is that in a lot of this kind of sword, you know, Japanese sword fiction, whether it's anime or real life dramas, cutting someone seems to just kill them immediately. Right, like that's kind of a trope, and there's, I mean, there's no there's penicillin actually... yet. Infections are bad, you know. The but, swords but are very, just... very sharp. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you. It, it's a trope where there are actually like contests, I think, or there used to be contests in movies to see like how many people in a row you could cut in a battle, like like a Guinness record type of thing. And basically, like if you just like cut someone once, they're out of the fight. There's none of this like, oh, like I'm kind of wounded and we'll get back up. They just lie on the ground, right? Like it's, it feels like a lightsaber. Like if you cut someone with a lightsaber, that's it. Yeah. They're, they're done for. So to me, I think the idea of cutting someone is, means killing in this type of fiction. So it's like very literal, but it also has a very literal implied result. Yeah. Yeah. I love having that very specific translation also. I feel like it, it really adds. Yeah. Okay, but so, so let's talk about that final moment. So what what do you think then of his decision in that moment where he's faced with the person he cares about, uh, like quite dearly, the person who's really kind of helped him sort of find a home and be settled, um, is now almost going to die. And so he decides that he wants to, that he's going to kill to save her. And she's saying like, don't do it, don't do it. What, what do you think of his decision to... She stops him at the last moment because her life is saved anyway. I think the clear implication is that he was going to kill. Uh, what do you think of his decision there? I mean, it feels to me sort of like the Daredevil versus Punisher scene in season two, I think episode two, where, mm-hmm. you know, it's basically this like 1v1 trolley problem, which is like right. the trolley's going to hit someone. You can change the track and it'll hit a different person, you know, right. and you can choose whether what that means to you, you know. Like, it seems to me like a reasonable choice. Like, you know, in stories, we so often get the third way. And here we kind of do. You know, you said her life is saved. Like, to me, the the fact that she was damseled here, but then is actually the one who saves herself. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, more active. She saves herself. Right, exactly. Like Jin says, the only two ways to break it are for you to kill me or for her to break out of it. With the kind of implication like people don't usually break out of it. Um, right. And the fact that she does break out of it, like, I mean, first of all, to save herself, but also to she saves Kenshin from having to basically, he's already made that decision, 
So you could say like that's something that's already happened, but she saves him from having to take that action basically by saving herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoy that she has some agency there and that she gets a victory basically. And um, I think, yeah, I think it's reasonable if someone's like, I'm going to kill this person unless you kill me. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably kill you. Like, I, I probably just will. Like, I, I'm very against killing people. But like, if you're going to kill someone I care about, like, if I have a way of stopping you that is less lethal, I'm definitely going to try and do that. But like, if it is this literal 1v1 trolley problem, I'm sorry, you you made your choice. I'll make mine. And like, mm-hmm. that's just, you know, that's that's how I feel about violence at the end of the day, really, is like, if if I were to say, no, I'm not going to get my hands dirty, like, I don't know, have I have I done better? Like, I would rather find a way, I would rather see heroes who find a way not to kill someone in that spot, but like... Sometimes maybe that's not a thing, right? And here they came up with this sort of mystical, you know, like it's not magic. Like, yeah, when you have to say something's not magic, it's totally usually magic, <laughs> right? And so they come up with this very big hypothetical, right? But um, yeah, I mean, he makes a decision that I think is consistent with his character because he gave up killing to, I mean, he started killing to protect the weak and innocent, basically. He gave up killing because... He didn't want to kill people anymore. But if someone's about to kill someone in that spot, you know, for most, usually he would find some third way, right? That happens constantly in the stories. Someone's like, I'm going to kill this person. I'm going to find a way without killing you, you know, to, um, to stop you. And I'm not, I don't remember whether in the series something like this happened where I remember there was a thing where he was like maybe about to kill someone, but I'd have to rewatch that. But like, Mm generally he he finds a third way and i love that i love stories where there's another way right there's a way that doesn't involve killing the person but if there is literally no other way all right no what i don't understand in this moment is that usually when the hero is confronted with this choice right to kill a villain the hero previously has not killed so mm. it is seen as this make or break moment where once you cross this line right forever you are now forever a killer yeah versus not a killer but this character kenshin has been a killer in the past so he's crossed that line many times and so there's this personal oath that he has but it it does not to me seem to hold the the gravitas of the usual you know if you do this you become just like them type of thing that we see I, I, I definitely picked up on that, and I, I thought it was very interesting the way they built that moment. And, and again, this is more coming even from Karu than from himself. It, it almost seemed like they were treating it like an addiction. Mm. Like, you know, mm. he couldn't have that first drink. Right. The idea that, like, if he kills once, then the seal is broken and he's not able to sort of stop himself again. Well, that's interesting about the addiction because of the undercurrent in the plot of opium. That we see throughout this. So that's a very different way of looking at it and, and something that I might have to re-examine. Mm-hmm. The idea, yeah, that if you kill, like, because I was thinking like, well, what? so what if he kills this person? Like, you've killed before. I feel like he's still a morally good person throughout this movie. Right. But the idea that if he breaks the seal, as you said, 
mm-hmm. he might go back to his former life. Yeah. Even that he might enjoy it. Also, because it's like, like it's, an addiction. It's so much easier, right? It's like, well, I instead of looking for you know the third way, kind of like I could just kill this person, and then like the next time, it's like maybe there is a third way, and like you just don't bother to look at it, right? You're just like, ah, oh, yeah, this is easy. I'll I'll just kill this person, and yeah, I I, I think that's a, a really good metaphor, you know, um, and not like not even just like addiction, like enjoying it, which maybe. Right. I mean, that right. definitely can be a thing, but also just like the, the ease, the sort of like habits, habits are powerful, you know, and if you have a habit like killing people or opium, like, and then you get past that habit where you've made it not something you do anymore. I think the longer you go without doing it, the easier it is to not do it. But then if you do it one time, it's like, oh, well, I did it that one time. Like I could just do it one more time, right? And I think it can yeah. sort of spiral there, kind of relapse. Yeah, I think you... that I think that last point is really essential. I I spent a lot of time in twelve step groups, both in, in Al Anon for my parents drinking, but also for some of my own addictive issues. And that's one thing that often get brought up is that the problem is that if you it's not that like the first drink will destroy you, it's that the first drink won't. And so right. that's you think like, oh, so maybe it's not. And yeah. I, I really love this moment, and, and and maybe we just see this movie fundamentally differently. And and, and it, I, I'll agree, maybe it's because I don't understand the translation, but I I think we're on the same page. But to me, like what you kept talking about the third way, kind of drawing a completely different conclu- uh, comparison. One of the things I love about Star Trek, the the Wrath of Khan movie, is it draws this idea of like. The whole point of the Kobayashi Maru is to see how would you face a no-win situation? Mm. How would you face a situation where you have to choose between one of two bad options? And that Kirk has lived his entire life always finding a third way. Right. And and the kind of part of the point of the movie is that that's kind of cheating. Some like it's great to find the third way, but it also means you never face the hard question. And I, I think that's why I'm so often frustrated by the I will do violence, but I won't kill. And what I meant by it being a cop out, and again, I understand that that's not exactly the the idea, but but it still seems like there's some level of he doesn't want to do that level of harm um, by cutting. It feels like he's always able to find a third way. And so here, what I like is that he's not he there is no third way. The only option is do you kill or not, or do you cut or not? and And so he chooses to do so because to me, that like, it's not that it kind of reveals he's a hypocrite at all, but it, it does show to me that like he's kind of the oath he's the oath he's taken is an oath he's taking in part because he can always find a third way, and that when he doesn't, when he can't, he will break it. And I, I just thought that was really that was a really nice way to play with the trope and to reveal a really interesting side of him. I agree. Yeah, I liked it in terms of this movie. I don't know how it fits into the whole history of the character in the anime and the other movies. But I, I don't think this is something that they can keep repeating, if that's the case, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, you can't have too many of this, the moments like this or else the character kind of starts to feel cheapened, mm-hmm. right? In the same way that Batman can only have that dilemma of killing the Joker a couple of times over the course of your, your history, because right. yeah, after a while, it's like yeah, why don't you just do it? You can't keep having that that dilemma. Right. They they do come back to that well a few times in the series over the course of like 
90 or 100 something episodes or whatever. But, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, how are you going to stop so-and-so without killing them? How are you going to stop so-and-so without killing them? How are you going to stop so-and-so without killing them? You know, but like here it does feel different than it usually does where, um, you know, I think one thing in terms of like what he actually chooses or doesn't choose to do is like he doesn't talk that much. You know, I think a lot of the conflict, there's a lot of internal conflict and a lot of it is implied, I think, you know, like there's there's a thing somewhere, somewhere else where someone's like, oh, so are you going to go kill so and so? And he's like, I'm going to stop them. And it's like, it's not it's never like, no, I'm not going to kill them. But he's not like, yes, I'm going to kill them, you know. Yeah. And it's definitely like, you know, a, a man, a few words. And I think um yeah, you, you definitely can't come back to the well of like making the decision to, cause here he's like, yeah, okay, I, I guess this is what I'm going to do. It's a big dramatic moment. If that's the big dramatic moment at the end of movie two, it's like, all right, we, we saw that moment. You know, it's, it's kind of like my peeve with like a lot of superhero movies is that it's like in each movie, they're like deciding whether or not to be the hero. It's like, give me that one time and then just show me, show me them doing their thing, right? Being true to who they are for a yeah. number of things. And then you can come back to that maybe in movie four or five one time, you know. Or like, can we all work together? Yes, you can. Right, you exactly. The alien, you defeated the Chitauri, now just work together. Right, Stop yeah. Stop fighting P- Totally, it. totally. Yeah, oh. and that's a problem, I think, with an anime or a manga because they go on for so long. Right. right? Like, right. this one was, what, 28 books, I believe I read, which is pretty long yeah. for a manga series to go on. And the the same kind of problems happen in, you know, Dragon Ball. You you can't just keep changing their hair color to make them more powerful. It, <laughs> it just gets cheapened after a while. Yeah. I, There's only I so will many say colors. Ju- just on the like the movie anime thing, the first time we saw Kenshin appear on screen, I looked at Mary and goes, "Oh, he has anime hair. I get it." because <laughs> he just has that very like he has like the bangs kind of falling in front of his eyes that like it, that mm. may well be a very accurate look to the time but it just looks like every oh, no. No, uh, no. <laughs> every emo slightly androgynous you know video game anime uh, uh, hero character that I've seen I mean I would imagine a swordsman with hair like that is not very accurate to any time <laughs> like, you know you definitely don't want bangs in your eyes when you're you're trying to fight <laughs> You know, <laughs> like, and he has right. anime age too, because Paul, I think you said he starts at like fourteen, and then yeah. this is another decade later. Mm-hmm. Still yeah, looks now, like a teenager. Yeah, now he's twenty eight, but yeah, he's yeah. he's supposed he definitely in the in the show he still looks like a kid. You know, when I, I even thought he was a kid until I realized he was twenty eight, and he'd been wandering for a decade after killing people from like you know high school ages, basically like yeah. fourteen to eighteen. Definitely, and definitely. All right, um, Paul, I think one of the things you wanted to talk about was the tropes. I think we've talked a little bit about how this kind of movie subverts some of the tropes. Like I said, I love that last moment. Uh, what else, where else do you find it interesting the way it played with tropes? Yeah, basically just like – so I I love um, Megumi and Kaoru. I think they're both great characters. Um, they both get damseled here. But yep. Megumi damsels herself. Like she just mm-hmm. straight up goes to go kill the guy. And then right. she gets captured and then Kenshin goes to – Kind of to save her, but also because, like, everybody's getting poisoned. Um, and, and and she does that in part, not just, like, for her own things, but because she doesn't want to bring danger to everyone else around her. Exactly. Exactly. So I thought that was a very heroic attempt right up until the Mace Windu backswing, which, like, 
That's exactly what I was thinking. Right? Like, just just stick it in. Don't pull it back first. That probably doesn't sound right. But, like, <laughs> you know, those backswings, I'm like, oh, come on. Again with the backswing. <laughs> like, yeah. No, but it was a fun way of subverting the trope as well as um, in the movie – like, you know, obviously there's kind of a romantic tension between Kenshin and Karu. Mm-hmm. And then this other very attractive woman is introduced. And she, like, flirts with him a little bit. You get the sense it's just kind of how she relates to people at first. But there's very little, like, love triangle action. And and even in the anime, the love triangleness of it is played up very hard in the first episode you meet her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very like, well, Karu, you, you missed your chance. He's going to go for me. I'm the pretty one. And then they just drop it entirely. And I was, again, they're very happy of like, we're not playing this game of the guy who just wants to swing his sword while two women are arguing over him. That, again, sounds very wrong. But you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. I, 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 in the series, they circle back to that a little bit. Spoilers. But um, there's definitely this feeling of, I think she really likes Kenshin a lot. And so does Kaoru. But she knows... That, like, Kenshin isn't really into her like that. I mean, I think she knows, like, maybe Kenshin isn't really in a mental place where he's necessarily all that into anybody like that for a while, at least. But, like, mm-hmm. there's – they don't it, – it does feel like one of those sort of paths that they could go down and then have it be this really big deal, right? And be um, a, you know, kind of like a, a team Edward team – Whatever the other guy's name is. What, Jacob or something? I don't know. Jacob. I know you just yeah. did Twilight, right? That's that's on the brain. But yeah. like <laughs> um and like bad choice, by the way. But um <laughs> Twilight of the Apprentice is very much the better Twilight, I will just say. <laughs> Definitely the better Twilight. But yeah, here like the fact that they don't belabor that, um, I, I like. You know, I, I like that that dynamic is presented. And then not explored to the point of, you know, banging one's head against the wall. Right. Hmm. So for me, just only watching the movie, Megumi seemed written like a character that was never going to be the love interest. That's just the impression that I got. Yeah. And I don't know how true that is to, to all the other material. From from the series, which is the only other material I've seen, it feels true to it, you know, that it, it's yeah. it, it never I don't feel like they give the audience the feeling like, oh, maybe they're going to get together. Will they? Won't they? I think they give the feeling she's interested in him. He's like, I will help you with your problems, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like she gave I, me the I, energy. Oh, go ahead. Just to talk about tropes, like the the trope in anime is basically that the flirtatious woman is never going to get with the main character, mm. right? Like, right. would you agree with that, Paul? Yeah, from uh, yeah, from from what I've seen, I mean, just, I've seen that just playing some of the Final Fantasy games, where it's always the like <laughs> the more flirtatious woman is the one who makes our hero realize that the shy, quiet one who's always looking at him is actually the one that he wants. Yeah, and 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 that's that's where I thought they were going to go with this, and so I was just very happy when there was just like there's pretty much no romance in this movie, and, and right, I'm fine with that. It doesn't need it. it the, there's a clear, he has a clear longing for her and for all that she represents and the home that she offers him, and I think you can see that as like if those two characters then develop into a romance, it would make a lot of sense. But I feel like 
in a lot of movies, he would just end it by like grabbing her and kissing her when he realizes she didn't die and that she helped save mm. him. And it didn't do that. And I was just no. like, yeah, you don't need that kiss in this movie. Yeah, I would say that the movie is very romantic and that the character is very romantic, but not in the way that I think most people usually think of. I think, you know, there's like romance doesn't necessarily just mean, you know, sexual interest between two people. Right. Yeah. It's like uh, there's like a, a broader sweeping meaning to the word. I mean, the I think the the manga is titled the translation is Ruini Kenshin Meiji Swordsman Romantic Story. Like and so I think the idea is that the whole thing is this kind of romantic story, but that it's not focused on like the attraction between characters so much. Yeah, I, I think that is very true. Basically, like the romance is not between two two humans, but more like between two lifestyles. Yeah, yeah. Right. What he what he sees in her is the possibility of not just like giving putting down the blade, or or yeah, like like giving up the blade of his weapon, but just putting it down completely and maybe like becoming a teacher mm-hmm. at this at this right. dojo. And I guess still using his skills, but probably. You know, as a teacher would here in this setting, using a wooden blade. Right. A wooden yeah. sword. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting because I, I also think there's a third level of romance there. Um, and this is much more subtle, but I think it's there maybe a little more, even more in the anime, which is like, you know, this moment of transition is in part like when when you're like moving away from a past that often is more, you know, towards a, a future that is more kind of modernized and industrialized. Like there's often the romanticization of the past, you know, mm-hmm. and I think there's some level of that too, of the romanticization of the samurai and the like, and that some of the movie is about like, yeah, it wasn't actually pretty. He was, you know, killing people the night before their wedding without really understanding why and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's some things about the character's backstory that, add to this feel i think that i won't really give away but um if you watch the prequel movie uh origins i think Mm -hmm. you know you'll you'll get to that not origins this is origins the prequel movie is called the beginning um and then the postquel is called the final so but yeah um yeah i i think that's really well said about sort of the 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 romance between like the the ideas and like ways of seeing the world kind of um, and I mean, I think he clearly in this movie, like loves Kaoru, right. But like, not in a, like, I want to get with her kind of way, you know, yeah. in yeah. a, like he sees her as, you know, found family, I think. Um, and as sort of emblematic of, of kind of like a way of hoping to see the world going forward. Yeah. And, and that's where I, I, um, we only get a little bit. Um, but all the stuff she says about sort of her understanding of the sword, that it's not necessarily a weapon of death, that it can be a, a weapon of life, I think mm-hmm. is really interesting and, and plays a lot more into the the idea of what it is that he, his oath is. For like sure. Um, is there any other last points or questions? We kind of got on for quite a while, but there's so much to talk about this movie. And I think we will definitely be returning to the Kenshin saga at later points. I know Will Freeland, who is often on a uh, podcast as a guest. Uh, he's been on talking about Moon Knight. He's part of the Hype is My Superpower podcast. He loves the anime, and so he's going to come on at some point. Um, but finishing up the, this uh, discussion about the ethical questions in movie one, any of the last points or questions either you want to get into? I was just going to no? say that in the in the English translation, anyway, he's constantly referred to as having godlike speed. 
you're talking about superpowers. Um, he hasn't quite leveled up to beyond godlike speed yet here, but, uh, <laughs> that, you know, there is definitely a level of, um, superhuman ability that is not necessarily regarded as being superhuman there, but, um, it is, um, definitely, I, I would regard it as a, you know, a super heroic level of swordsmanship. And I think the style he does, Hiten Mitsurugi style, kind of maybe plays with that sort of like godlike. I think it means something about, I forget the exact translation. I don't know if. Um, what's what's the word? Hiten Mitsurugi. It's a lot. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, that's not in the, that, how's that not in the, uh, that's not in the, uh, the wiki even. Okay. <laughs> And I'll just say about that, in the anime, I think they do a wonderful job of capturing that. A lot of the times when he starts using his sword powers, everything kind of fades and you just see this like silver slash of light. Yeah. It's supposed to be like the tip of the sword, like or the, the sword itself moving all over. And I think that level of swordsmanship is very difficult to capture in live action. And I felt like they did a fantastic job of it. It's not quite yeah. the same visually, but I think that's a huge challenge. And I yeah. felt like they did a really good job of it. Yeah. It felt, it felt like they, they captured anime level combat on live action in a way that made someone like me who doesn't enjoy anime combat really enjoy it. And that's, and, and people who do like it, like it. So that's a, that's a high compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Ricky, any other kind of last thoughts or comments from you? No, I, I enjoyed this. I'm glad I got to watch it. I don't know if I'll go on and watch some of the other ones, but Fair. <laughs> it was a good movie. Yeah, yeah. I think overall, it was. It, I like movies that ask us good questions, but also it was, just, it was just a great movie. I'm just gonna definitely enjoy watching it again sometime. So, well, thank you both for being so much a part of this. Um, Paul, you have been engaging in combat of a different sort, <laughs> a uh, taking of money and giving of money and making videos about it. Uh, how have your battles with the YouTube uh, algorithm and the uh, forces of video editing been going? Yeah, they've been going well. Um, it is it is a lot of work, learning a lot of skills, um, but it's fun. And, uh, you know, the videos, I think, have been getting better and, and a little bit more widely viewed. So, uh, you know, I'm Zed Madman Poker on uh, YouTube with that. And, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Riki, anything you're doing these days in the world of Pokemon you want to have people know about and follow up on? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Rikipedia Go, where I will give you tips and tricks on how to fight with Pokemon and, and the game Pokemon Go. And remember, they do not die, they faint. No <laughs> killing in Pokemon. At some point, we are going to discuss the uh, ethics of going out into the world to seek out wonderful, beautiful creatures, enslaving them, and then forcing them to fight for your amusement. Because I have some questions. <laughs> right, I feel well, better about it if they just faint, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Definitely. I'm grossly misrepresenting it. I know. That's that's the joke. Um, thank you both so much for being a part of this. To our listeners, um, have you seen the movie? What do you think? What do you love about it? Uh, if you haven't, just from our discussion, what, what, what do you think? Is it something now you're interested in watching? What's your take on this whole idea of, you know... Agreeing to keep fighting, but thinking you can do so without, while still holding certain lines of things you won't cross. Would love to hear your thoughts on it. If you go to theethicalpanda.com, you'll find all of our information, as well as information on all the other podcasts I'm doing. Uh, I'm half myself, Paul Riki. Thank you all so much for being a great audience. Have a great day.